Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles together now to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Roman church. Romans chapter 2, our text today, verses 17 through 29. About 50 years ago, a young man by the name of Martin Rosen was converted to Christianity. And he was ordained by the Conservative Baptist Association to be a missionary to Jewish people. He was a Jew himself and had a great burden for those souls. Eventually, the nonprofit organization that he founded became known as Jews for Jesus. And Mr. Rosen passed away in 2010, but Jews for Jesus still is active in evangelizing the Jewish community all over the world. Uh, the title of our message today is not Jews for Jesus, it's Jesus for Jews. Subtitled, Why Our Jewish Friends Need the Gospel. Sometimes uh, we may believe that certain groups don't need the gospel. But what Paul's been doing here for two chapters is laying out the case that all human beings need the gospel. The most pagan Gentile up to the most religious Jew needs the gospel. And we need to be able to take the gospel to our Jewish friends. And Jewish people are our friends. They are our neighbors, our co-workers. For some of us, they're our employers. I have a close relative who works for an Israeli company. Politically, Israel has been our nation's closest and most dependable ally in the Middle East for decades now. I have seen your bumper stickers in the parking lot. I have seen your yard signs, and I know that many of you love and pray for Israel regularly as I do. The point of the message today is that if you love Israel and Jewish people, the most loving thing you can do for them is to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 2,000 years ago, there was another Jewish man who was converted to Christianity and became a follower of Jesus. He also was incredibly burdened for his fellow countrymen. His name was Paul. And he wrote this letter that we're studying this fall here at First Baptist Keller. In fact, he wrote a good portion of our New Testament. But in this letter to the Roman church, he addresses the universal guilt of all humanity and the certain future judgment of all humanity. And so today, we want to remind ourselves of his motive. And you have to wait until chapter 10 to see it, but I'm going to give away the end. He says in Romans 10:1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is their salvation. His motivation for saying some, as you'll see today, some very hard things to people that he loved, people that he grew up with, is that he knew they needed Jesus and he was burdened that they would be saved. So with that context in mind, let's read the remainder of chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? 
For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, through having, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. May the Lord bless the reading of this, his inerrant word. Well, in verse 17, we see a claim that Paul's audience is making. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, if you make the claim of being a Jew, and of course, Paul was Jewish himself. And what he meant was he understood there was a certain racial and cultural pride of being a Jew, God's chosen people. They wore it like a badge of honor. There was a special relationship that God had with the Jewish people that he didn't have with any other group. Remember, it started with Father Abraham, uh, the greatest of the Jewish patriarchs. When he was down in Ur of the Chaldees, God came to him and chose him out of all the people of the earth that he would make a great nation. And he said, go into the land that I will show you. And he made him certain promises that he was going to receive the land as his possession and that through him, that his descendants were going to be so many that they would be uh, like the sand of the seashore, the stars in the heaven. And that through the nation that God would create through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's heady stuff. And they took it very seriously. And they traced their ancestries and their genealogies meticulous, meticulously. And if you could rightly, self, rightly call yourself a Jew, it was a thing of pride. And Paul knew that. Paul used to have that on his resume, remember? Hebrew of the Hebrews. Pharisee of the Pharisees, that's touching the law, blameless. But he says, you rely upon the law. Uh, many of his Jewish friends believed that they understood God's will by knowing the written law. And so therefore they boasted in God. They had great pride that knowing the true God, they were morally and ethically superior to the rest of the world. Specifically, they claimed three things. Verse 18, he says, they claimed they were wise. I take it wiser than those countries around them. He says, you know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed in the law. That is, they thought that they thought more logically, more clearly, and were able to make better decisions because of their relationship with God. They also said in verse 19 that many of them believed that the rest of the nations of the world were blind and they were to be their guides. Remember, Jesus said of the Pharisees that they were blind leaders of the blind. They didn't see it that way. They thought that they saw very clearly and were able to help others understand the truth. And then verse 20 says, they believed that they were correctors of everyone else. You've known people like that, right? You've ever had a second semester seminary student in your Sunday school class? They are the correctors of others because they've had a half year of systematic theology. We've all been there. I'm not picking on anybody. Um, but uh, this is what he's talking about. He understood the kind of pride that they had. Now, the Apostle Paul is not the first person to run up against that kind of prideful resistance from Jewish people. Uh, listen to just one of the dozens of interactions we have in the Gospels 
that Jesus had with the religious Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. And there are so many, I found it very difficult to narrow it down to just one. But I think Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is a microcosm of the entire relationship Jesus had with the Pharisees. It says that there were many thousands of people had gathered together, and they were stepping on one another. Remember, one of the reasons the Jewish uh, Pharisees hated Jesus is that he was stealing their religious thunder. They were the ones that the common people used to come to with their questions about the law. But Jesus is out there teaching with authority. He's performing miracles, and he's become a regional celebrity. And the people are coming by the throng, so much so that they're stepping on one another. And in the midst of this throng of people, Jesus takes his inner circle, the 12, aside and says this to them, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus knows this is heady stuff for these blue-collar fishermen that he's called to be his disciples. Thousands of people coming out every day, and by their close association with Jesus, they were getting in on some of his celebrity. And Jesus knows the temptation is for that to go to their head, which is what happened to the Pharisees. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they love to have the greetings in the marketplace. They love to dress up in their regalia so people will know them as a rabbi or a Pharisee. When they go to a dinner party, they make sure they're seated close to the host, seated close to the host. They want everyone to know they're important. And he says, not so with you. He told his disciples, if you want to be great, you have to be the greatest servant. And so this was the source of the constant friction between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. He says the point is their hypocrisy. They pretend to be one thing when they're actually something very different. They pretend to be keepers of the law and their heart is wicked. In fact, he says, uh, your heart is far from me, as Dan said in his prayer. That's exactly right. It's the same hypocrisy that the Apostle Paul is confronting here in Rome. In Romans chapter 2, verse 21, he says, you therefore who teach someone else, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who loathe idols, do you rob temples? These are the basics of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. Three of the Ten original commandments, he says, you're breaking. He says, you say don't steal and you steal. You say don't commit adultery, you commit adultery. You say, say no to idols, but you're robbing temples. It's hypocrisy. It's the same thing that Jesus dealt with. And it is especially offensive in one who knows the word, who knows the requirements, and even holds himself up as a teacher of others. And even in the Christian church, James, the brother of Jesus, warned, not let many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing you will incur the stricter judgment. And if you've ever had the privilege and the honor and the responsibility of being the one who stands behind a pulpit like this, or even teach a Sunday school class, or even teach children. You know that is a weighty thing. And I say to my interns often, when they say, do you still get nervous? I say, I'll tell you like this. Every Sunday morning when I sit on the front row, <laughs> when we're within a few words of the last song being over, I look to the back door to see if I can't run out. And it's not that I'm nervous, it's that I sense the weight of standing before others and saying, thus says the Lord, because I know I'm a sinner and I don't want to be a hypocrite about it. But I don't think Paul's saying that we can't stand to preach or teach if 
unless we're sinlessly perfect, else all the pulpits in the country would be empty. And all the Sunday school lecterns would be empty. It's the attitude of the heart. See, their attitude was we don't need forgiveness. We don't need a savior because we're right with God because we're Jewish and we have the law. And so the question is, why did God choose a people like Israel unto himself? Well, we often say here that with great privilege becomes great responsibility. And certainly the Jewish people had a great responsibility. What was their responsibility? Why does God do anything that he does, we say around here, to glorify himself? And so their purpose of being set apart in a dark world as a light was to point to God, to bring glory to him. And so the question is, did they do so? Well, imperfectly. And really the answer is no. And the question becomes, what, what is the responsibility? Well, Paul quotes here from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5. Listen to it. He says, you who boast in the law, that's the Jewish leaders, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? Now hear this. This is tough to hear. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's what Isaiah said to the ancestors of the people that Paul is talking to. This has been their history, that God gives a command to his people to be obedient and to be a light. And the first generation sort of does it. And by the second generation, they've lost interest. And by the third generation, they've gone into idolatry. And so what does God do? He sends prophets to tell them to repent or judgment is coming. Do they listen to the prophets? No, they stop their ears and say, prophesy to us smooth things. Tell us everything's going to be all right. And finally, God sends judgment, and then the cycle starts over again. They repent temporarily, as they did in the days of Josiah, when they recovered the law. But then by the second generation, they're back to idolatry, and this cycle repeats itself over and over and over in human history. They don't learn their lesson. It was that way in Jesus' day, though they didn't see it. Listen to the words of John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered to him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, there are some folks that skipped history class in high school. We have never been enslaved to anyone. I suspect Egypt would have something to say about that. I expect Babylon would have something to say about that. And even at the time they were saying it to Jesus, they were angry because the Roman Empire was crushing them. They were enslaved at that moment. And yet in their pride, they said, we're free already. We don't need any more truth, Jesus. They were secure in their Jewishness. But it is a false security. So what Paul is attempting to do here in chapter 2 is disabuse them of that understanding of their Jewishness. He's attempting to strip them of the securities that they have heaped around them that Paul knows are false senses of security. And so our third point is the false security. Paul describes sort of three areas in which the Jewish people have false security. Number one, the fact that they are genetically Jewish. That's what he means when he says 
you call yourself or you claim to be Jewish. That is, you can trace your genealogy. He's not doubting that. He's not questioning uh, their ancestry. He's just saying that that is a false security. It's a badge of honor you wear, but it holds no weight on the day of judgment. The second thing they had a false security about was that they had the law. We saw it last week. They were hearers of the law. They went to the synagogue every Saturday. Someone got up and read a portion of the law. Someone made comments on it. They went home. They did that week after week. And they said, we have the law. And Paul says, we saw last week, it's not the hearer of the law. It's the doer of the law that God is pleased with. But then it comes to this third point of false security, and that is circumcision. Circumcision is the outward physical sign of the covenant promises that God made with Abraham. And so he picks up on that in verse 25, and listen to what he says. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a violator of the law, your circumcision has turned into uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will his uncircumcision not be regarded as circumcision? Now follow his point. I know it's uh, hard for us to follow, but try really hard. He says, if he who is physically uncircumcised keeps the law, will he not judge you, though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a violator of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Here's his point. Nor is circumcision that which is an outward of the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one where? Inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from people, but from God. Now, this is harsh stuff from Paul to his fellow Jews because they prided themselves in the law and their genetics and their circumcision as a sign of the covenant promises. But Paul is saying, look, circumcision was designed to be a sign of God's covenant faithfulness to you. But it has become, in Paul's day, what many Jewish people take to be a security blanket. If they ever have any doubts about their relationship to God, they reminded that they have the sign of circumcision. Now, once again, Paul wants to remind them uh, that what God cares about is the heart. Now, every one of them should have memorized that verse in Hebrew school as children. Man judges on outward appearances, but God judges where? The heart. So they had this symbol. Paul's not doubting that. He's just saying that God is not about symbols. He's about obedience. And so he says it very clearly, a true Jew, one who is truly set aside for God's purposes and glory, is a person who obeys God's commandment from a circumcised or a changed heart. And that's what the circumcision physical sign was supposed to be. He says, whose praise is not from people. Remember, that was Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees. They live for the praise of people. Look at that rabbi. Isn't he great? Look how... His phylacteries have been enlarged. He must study the law day and night. Look how long and eloquent his prayers are in the temple. And that just stoked their fire. They loved it. And Jesus knew their heart. And he says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Even the praise of men can be a treasure and an idol in our lives. But live for the glory of God is his point. Look what he says. His praise, the true Jew he means, is not from people, but from God. Make that be your ambition, to receive praise from God because of your obedience. So that's the hypocrisy. 
Now, you do know that the word hypocrite is a Greek word we get from um, the theater. You've probably seen the ruins, at least on pictures, of the amphitheaters they used to have in and around Greece. And they loved to go to the theater. And uh, they didn't have electronic amplification like we have this electronic microphone. And so they would wear masks, the actors would. And inside the mask was a little megaphone. And the mask would have features that you could recognize as sad or happy or angry. And inside the megaphone, the actors could speak their lines and it could be heard a great distance away. And so that word hypocrite, the Greek word, means one who hides behind a mask. One who tends to be one thing and is actually something else. And now Paul turns his attention away from their hypocrisy. He's laid it bare and he wants to talk about the reality. And I want to talk about your reality and my reality today here in Keller, Texas. As I look around, as I did in the first service, I could tell there was a little concern. <laughs> because when you talk about something as sensitive and personal as someone's racial and cultural identity, we run a risk, don't we? And the risk is that you could be misunderstood to be haters of that race. Or anti-Semitic is the word that we use to describe someone who, who hates Jewish people. And we're not. As I said, we seek to be a friend of Israel and to seek to be a friend of Jewish people. So this is not my words. I'm a Gentile. I'm telling you what the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said to his people from a motive of love. He says, I, I don't want you to continue on in this false sense of security. And I've heard people say, even of disciplining their own children, that I love them too much to tell them the truth. <laughs> I love them too much to correct them or, or discipline them. No, you don't. Because it is not unloving. It is not uncharitable to warn a person you love about the danger that is before them. And I would say it like this. It is not uncharitable or unloving to tell a person who's driving 85 miles an hour down a two-lane highway that the bridge a half a mile ahead is out and that they're going to die if they keep going ahead. You'll do anything you can to stop them. You'll stand in the road and risk your own life to wave them down as you should. It's not unloving and it's not uncharitable to tell a person who's in a sinking boat to get out. That's what Paul is doing. He's not motivated by hatred or resentment. He's motivated by love. And you may be saying, well, pastor, that's all well and good, but the truth is I'm not Jewish and I only know a handful of Jewish people. Why are you spending an entire sermon on this topic? I think for two reasons. Number one, the Bible says that as Christians, we're to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. That is, we're to be able to articulate the gospel message to whoever asks about it. And who knows? God may already have a divine appointment for you with a Jewish person you don't even know yet. There may be a for sale sign on your street. And maybe a Jewish family will buy that home. And you'll have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Some of you may be getting on a plane this week at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Maybe the person in the seat next to you will be Jewish. You need to understand their culture and their point of view and be able to share the gospel with them clearly. But I think there's another application for those of us who are not Jewish or who rarely interact with Jewish people. And that is its application to what many have called cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is, is a religion that is superficial at best. 
It's made up of people who make a profession of faith in Christ, but they don't possess faith in Jesus Christ. They grew up in an environment or a geographical area where it is not only okay to be Christian, it helps you socially to be identified with the local church. And I know from talking to many of you, you grew up like I did in the rural South, where it was socially not only acceptable, but almost incumbent upon you that you belong to some church in town. And this is what I mean by cultural Christianity. It's surface level only. And growing up in the rural South, as I did, had a lot of experience with cultural Christianity. Now let me say, some of the finest Christian people I know live in the rural South. Dear widow women who taught me Bible stories with a flannel board and taught me the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in Sunday school. And I'm not running them down. I'm just saying that uh, there was a church on every corner. And I don't exaggerate. I have a friend who was a director of missions in a county in North Mississippi. And he called me one day and said the census reported that there were 17,000 souls in his county. Every man, woman, boy, and girl. He says, I would like to report to you that there are 48 Southern Baptist churches in this county. That's Southern Baptist churches. There are at least that many Methodist churches, half that many Pentecostal churches, and half again as many churches. There were probably 200 evangelical churches to serve a population of 17,000. And yet, all of them nearly were struggling to keep the doors open. Their membership roles were bloated. It would be hard to find an adult in that county that was not a member of some church. And yet, the culture was not being impacted with the gospel. That's what I mean by cultural Christianity. It's simply a way of life. It's in the head and not the heart. It's a false sense of security, not unlike many of Paul's Jewish friends had. Here's what I mean. When you ask a person who grew up a cultural Christian about their standing with the Lord and what do they think is going to happen when they die, they will often say something like this. Here's the question. If you died today and you stood before the Lord, what would you say if he asked, why should I let you into heaven? And they would lead with this. Well, my daddy was a pastor. Or my grandfather was a deacon and he helped to found this church. Or my mother played the piano for 30 years. That's all well and good. It's also irrelevant to the question at hand. Well, if that didn't work, maybe they turned to the law. They kept the rules. They checked the boxes on their envelope and went to Sunday school and Bible school. Maybe they even were confirmed in the local Methodist church. Well, if that doesn't do the trick, they have one Hail Mary pass left, and that's an external sign. Pastor, you remember when I got baptized. And some would say, I've got baptized multiple times. As I got baptized in the Methodist church when I was an infant, and then I fell in love with a good Baptist girl, and she wanted me to get baptized in her church, and so I did, so she'd marry me. So I've got all the bases covered. Don't worry about me, Pastor. I don't need the gospel. The problem is there was no heart change. The problem was like Nicodemus in John 3. He had yet to be born again. He said, Pastor, that's pretty hard. Talk about the people you grew up with. I love those people. You must be born again. Now, compare those false securities that I just mentioned about the rural South 
to Paul's friends, the Jews. They said, Paul, we don't need to hear about Jesus. Our parents were Jewish. They took us to synagogue. We, we have the law. We know the commandments. I can recite them in Hebrew. And Paul, if you don't believe that, don't you remember when I was a baby? On the eighth day, I was circumcised. Every time I doubt whether or not I'm right with God, I remember, oh yeah, I've been circumcised. It's irrelevant. Paul says true circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. A true Jew is one who's been changed internally, not externally. And I say again, it is not uncharitable to point out to another person or another culture that the path that their own leads to hell. In fact, I would say it this way. It's incredibly uncharitable and unloving not to point it out. How much do you have to hate someone to let them stay on a path that you know leads to hell? Jesus said it this way in his Sermon on the Mount. There's two paths. One has a wide gate. One has a narrow gate. One is a broad and smooth path. One is a difficult path full of dangerous toils and snares. One of them leads to hell and one of them leads to heaven. But here's the thing. As you've heard other preachers say, the sign on both the gates says this way to heaven. People who are on that broad path and enter that, narrow, that wide gate of works righteousness, whether it's Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism or Mormonism or any ism you want to say, believe they're on the path to heaven. And unless someone comes along and says, no, you're not. And I love you too much to let you stay on this path. They're going to continue in blissful ignorance all the way to hell. I went to a football game yesterday down in College Station. And the best team won. <laughs> but as I was filing into that stadium, there was a man with a microphone. <laughs> with his three little children, preaching the gospel. And he was begging 100,000 people, most of whom I suspect belong to a church somewhere, to make sure they're not a cultural Christian. Because they were going, let's be honest, to worship something that wasn't God. And he was concerned for their soul. And halfway through that game... In all that pomp and circumstance, I leaned over to the guy next to me and said, you know, I feel like I ought to go down and stand by that guy. He's making a whole lot of sense. And the people that walked by and thought he was crazy. But he was telling the truth. That if you don't repent, if you don't bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how often you go to church. It doesn't matter how many times you're baptized. It doesn't matter if you have some sign like baptism or some certificate that someone gave you when you were a child, you must be born again. And Paul loved his Jewish family enough to tell them the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the truth is hard. And I thank you for this congregation who week after week comes back and back having heard hard truth. But Lord, 
hard truth is like good medicine. Sometimes it, it tastes bad going down, but it's what we need. And Father, what our culture needs to hear is that you must be born again. Forgive us where we assume too much. Because someone is active in a church or because they culturally are acceptable that, that they don't need the gospel. Paul has, for the last two chapters, laid it out as clear as possible. Everybody needs Jesus. The most uh, hard-hearted Gentile idolater needs Jesus. The most self-righteous religious person in our country needs Jesus. And even God's chosen people, the Jews, need Jesus. So, Father, I thank you for um, people like Martin Rosen who recognize that and um, share the gospel with the 15 million Jews there are in the world. Lord, I pray for them, and I pray you'd bless and prosper their ministry. Father, I pray for our church family that we would be always ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us to any person, regardless of their cultural background. And then, Father, I pray for the people in this room that we'd never assume that just because a person got up and came to church on a Sunday morning that they're born again. So I pray that your spirit would move among us today. And if there's any who know you not, I pray you'd reveal that within them. Father, that you would uh, convict them of their personal sin and guilt, and then that you would grant them faith and repentance as a miracle work of your spirit. Father, I thank you, as we've seen today, you're still in the saving business. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, I pray for revival. I pray for awakening in our church, our city, our state and nation. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would move mightily and that it would be so evident that you're at work that even the most hard-hearted person couldn't miss it. Because, Lord, we want you to be glorified. What a frightening statement that instead of glorifying you, we would cause the pagans to blaspheme. May it never be said of us, Lord. May we ever and always live our lives for the praise of heaven. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, Visit us online at fbckeller.org.